Welcome to Swing to Technique, a podcast all about how to get better faster. Today, my guest is Dan Porter, the co-founder and CEO of Overtime, a digital sports media network for the next generation of fans, and also Overtime Elite, OT7, and OTX, which are new basketball, football, and boxing leagues for some of the nation's best high school and college-aged players. Prior to Overtime, Dan was the first president of Teach for America, started and then sold the first company to sell concert tickets online, was the CEO of OMG Pop and the creator of the Draw Something game, which was the most popular social game in the world at the time, and then he was the head of digital at William Morris Endeavor. This is an incredible list of massively successful companies and nonprofits. And in this interview, Dan and I discuss those companies as well as what it takes to be such a wildly successful entrepreneur, what's learnable and what's not, and what he looks for when hiring people into his organizations. With that, here's Dan Porter. So, Dan, welcome to Sweat the Technique. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. I was texting with our mutual friend, Christine Choi, last night. And, you know, Christine has been with KIPP and with our organization since the very beginning. She was with you at the beginning of Teach for America. She seems to have a real knack for being at the beginning of great things that are about to happen. And along those lines, she told me to ask you about your first date with your wife. It seems like Christine maybe had a role in that. Uh, Yes, we all work together at Teach for America. And I guess a good way to get somebody to go out with you is to make it less stressful. So the three of us went out to Cafe Mogador, I believe, in the East Village, probably about 30 years ago. It was like a little triangle around the table and kept it going. And I was able to be assessed as potential dater boyfriend material based on uh, Christine uh, being in between. And that was really her beginning in communications, you know, because <laughs> it's really just making sure people say the right things and they don't say the wrong things. And so that was her launch pad there. And then she actually read a poem at our wedding oh, nice. uh, as a conclusion of all of that. Yeah. And it seems like that's much like Teach for America and Kip. That has worked out as well. You're 20 plus years going strong, it sounds like. Absolutely. Um, the other thing Christine said about you is that you are very purpose-driven. I mean, I thought that was interesting given the wide variety of things that you've done. And I'm curious what that means to you. Like, what does it mean when Christine says you're purpose-driven? I would say, in a way, I think that she's talking more about the business side or the for-profit side. But I think that I'm a better and a more focused for-profit leader and executive because I spent almost 10 years in nonprofit. And like in nonprofit, there's no bottom line, right? There's no revenues, expenses, EBITDA, anything else like that. You're just kind of like, are we making a difference? And how clear can we be about the problem we're addressing, whether it's inequities in education, whether it's food waste, whether it's homelessness. And so you get very, as opposed to a company where you're just like, our profits grew 20% or our stock price went up 10%. In nonprofit, you're just kind of like, did we make an impact on the big thing that we went after? And I think taking that mindset and applying it to a business where everyone who works at that business realizes that they're doing something that's much bigger than you know just driving sales goals quarter over quarter, but they're creating something new in the world. They're doing something positive for the audience. I think that kind of sense of purpose is important. And so maybe what she really meant is is being able to kind of articulate that purpose for every kind of business that I run and really connect the people who work to that, work for the company to that purpose. 
And we'll get into some of the businesses you've run. But before we do that, you started out of college in education. Is that right? You were a teacher? My first year out of college, I kind of like interned and worked a little bit in the music business and then in the PR business. And then one year out of college, I became a public school teacher the year before Teach for America started. So that was just kind of like independently on my own. And then how'd you meet up with the folks at Teach for America? In a very unexciting manner in that Wendy Kopp, the founder, went to Princeton. The first person that she hired, Daniel Oscar, was my roommate from Princeton. They were looking for people. And I think all startups rely on existing networks. I've got a guy here who went to Hebrew school with the co-founder of my company here. So it's like you're kind of looking for people that you know and trust because you don't have a clear job description and because it's a chaotic early days. And so I think through that network and and they were like, you've taught. And I was like, well, I mean, I had taught for one year. And they're like, that, that's more than most of the people worked here. And I was like, well, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you that I really know anything, but it sounded cool and interesting. And I was just like in the mode of being young and saying yes. So I was like, okay, sounds good. And I started at Teach for America and I didn't have a job description. I was just like a person hired. And I remember showing up at the summer training institute and it was like, can you get these people from the bus station? I was like, yeah, sure. What about this? What about that? And it's just kind of like everybody was just doing everything. And then you became the first president of Teach for America. Is that right? I did. What, what did that mean in that era? So I ran all the recruitment and selection became like kind of my first big thing, which was everything from writing the recruiting script to figuring out what we we're looking for, to designing the interview process that's still mostly used today, to literally teaching myself how to build a database and my me myself building the database that stored all of the application stuff. And we did great. I mean, we did. It was really, I found that for whatever reason, I was really good at taking something that was not as well organized and creating a really organized structure around it. And it became a big success point in the company. And then I kind of ran another thing for the company. And then at that point, Wendy, who was the founder, wanted to stop being the president of Teach for America and focus on even bigger opportunities for Teach for America. And they looked internally at a bunch of people and I was one of them and they gave me my shot and I became president. So, oh yeah. So the other thing I did was I really worked on the expansion of Teach for America. I was a person who went to all the new cities and stuff like that. And you started with what, a hundred core members? It started with six locations and 500 core members and then, and then almost doubled in location and core members. But I remember Wendy said something that I will never forget which is that a lot of the early funders of Teach for America really encouraged her to take 50 core members, just figure out the model, get it right, grow. And she very astutely, which I give her 100% credit for, said, if we have 50 core members, nobody's ever going to care about Teach for America. And she was right. And maybe we bit off more than we could chew by taking 500 core members. But we were on the map and within two years, we were in the front page of the New York Times. And that validation is what allows you to attract really good candidates and raise money and grow a program and have a bigger impact. And about maybe 10 years after you were doing that, I, I went through that interview process that you designed and joined Teach for America myself, taught up in Washington Heights, New York. So I not only taught in Washington Heights, but I started a basketball program both within my school for kids during the summer who didn't have anything else to do. And we would play against, you know, AAU teams and that sort of thing. 
And we were up on 164th Street. Of course, that's about nine or 10 blocks north of the famous Rucker Park basketball court in Harlem. And I would take my players and students down to the court and we would watch these guys. Sometimes it would be famous NBA stars like Allen Iverson, Stephon Marbury, uh, Kevin Durant would show up, Kobe Bryant. One time we saw a line 15 blocks long and we're like, who's who's there today? It's Kobe Bryant. But And they all had big followings, of course. But there were also guys whose names we didn't even know. They all had these nicknames, Bone Collector and Skip to My Lou and um, The Professor and people like that who were, had just as big of a following in New York. And the stuff they would do on a basketball court was insane. And I remember this is, of course, before iPhones and cameras in everybody's pocket. And I remember just thinking... I really wish I could video this and send it to my dad and my friends back home to show them like how crazy New York City basketball is and all they're missing out on. And that seems to be kind of a version of what Overtime does, your current company, kind of crowdsourcing or bringing to the world athletes that maybe they wouldn't see otherwise, as well as some that they see every day. I'm curious, is that right? Is that a fair statement about Overtime? And, and whether it is or not, like how would you describe what overtime does. I'd give it like a B minus, to be honest. Yeah, sure. They all went and played at Rucker and Dykeman. Everyone you described was part of the And One mixtape tour. I've worked with all of them. At that time, it was more that basketball was very traditional and, you know, the street ball players brought back a different style. Now, most of those moves are illegal in a technical basketball game. You know, they're traveling or you're bouncing the ball off somebody's head, but they're very creative and they're fun and everybody likes to do them in their driveway. And those guys really blew up and there's a whole documentary about it. And they use a mixtape to sell sneakers. I would say, you know, when overtime started, it was kind of like I was covering more traditional basketball players. I was not really covering street ball players. But I think in general, there were some similarities in that people were looking kind of to discover exciting new players who they didn't know. I think at that time, social media was very big. I had I was the head of digital at Endeavor, William Morris Endeavor, which was a I built the largest digital talent agency. So I went from like representing, you know, 250 of the biggest creators and YouTubers who had every single kid in America watching to going into the offices of sports leagues and hearing them say no kids are watching. Well, if I'm a YouTuber, I set up my camera on a tripod, I make a video, I put it on YouTube, I talk to my audience. If I'm an athlete, I have a ball in my hand, so I can't do any of that. And so it was just this idea that I think the audience was ready to experience and see a different level of athlete. And we didn't actually really crowdsource. We actually built our own technology and hired a thousand people all over the country to film for us. So the quality was high. But the reality is, is every year there were 10, 12, 15 players who were kind of just captured the imagination of every young person in America. And we told their story from A to Z. And the ones that are in the NBA like that, LaMelo Ball, Zion Williamson, some who didn't make the NBA, some who did great in college, we covered Tyler Hero. And it's like the audience doesn't have time to figure out who 50 players are, but there's 10 every year. And, and I think what we did was we went in to something that was undervalued, which was kind of high school basketball, which traditionally had a couple of attributes. It was kind of either like very long tail, like who's the best team in South Carolina, or very focused on recruiting five stars. Are they going to go to Duke or not? A niche audience. And we just kind of like knocked down all the walls and just said, hey, here's a story about the 10 coolest kids in America who play basketball. 
And that was it. You don't need to know where they went to school or what their wingspan is. And we took an audience of maybe a million people were interested in that. And we created an audience of 25 million people that were interested in that. And then that became so big that we actually built and launched our own basketball league on top of that. So before we get to the league, I'm curious, like there's already a big sports media landscape out out there. ESPN is obviously the biggest or the best known that's focused exclusively on sports. What about what you are doing is different than what ESPN provides? Um, I mean, I can infer some of it from what you said, but there's obviously more to it. Yeah. So I would say a different version of that question is like, well, how did you compete with ESPN? They had billions of dollars of revenue. They had more people in the bathroom at ESPN at any time that we had working in our entire company, you know? And and the reality is, is that you have to do the things that they can't do. So number one, ESPN is really about sports news. We were not about sports news. We weren't breaking trades and telling you who to start in fantasy. Number two, ESPN covered a very select, your Tom Brady's, your LeBron's, We just covered the young people who they didn't think were interesting, but we knew all the young people thought were interesting. Number three is the ESPN audience is much older. So you're not going to use a certain kind of slang or humor or anything else like that to reach them because it's not what they expect. We're able to talk to our audience in in a voice that resonates with them. And I think the last thing is like, we just understood the intersection between on the court and off the court, basketball and culture. So on ESPN, there's there's no need to talk about sneakers. What sneakers are they wearing? What's happening off the court? Any of that other stuff, there's no humor. And for us, it was just an understanding that our audience, the kind of Gen Z millennial audience had a much, they understood that sports was culture. And an ESPN said sports is like, a factual thing where you cover it and you give people data and information. And we're like, sports is about being alive and experiencing the world. And I think that kind of point of view and that expertise in being digital first allowed us, I mean, we have 90 million followers across everything we do. So there's no reason, like if ESPN had been a different company, if Bleach Report had been a different company, we should have zero followers, but they didn't go after those opportunities with the audience and we did. Have they started to since I've seen your success in this? Yeah, I mean, their accounts look exactly like our accounts. I mean, to me, it's kind of mind blowing that I had zero sports rights. And so the only thing I could do was to lean into culture and humor. And now it's so successful that if you follow them on Instagram, it literally looks like it's overtime, except for the fact they actually have billions of dollars of sports rights. Right. And yet they still make their stuff look like our stuff. Well, the sincerest form of flattery. So you turned that into now that plus a basketball league called Overtime Elite, right? Yeah, I have a basketball league, a football league, and I, I'm in boxing also. Okay. Started, though, with basketball. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And it's a league for 16 to 20-year-olds? Yeah. So high school and college-age kids, why would the latest version of a Zion Williamson, why do they go to, you had, I think, two out of the five top picks in the NBA draft coming out of overtime? Like, Why is that? Why do they choose you guys instead of Duke or the G League or something? I would say, number one, it's who we are. Like, we're just great at training people to be successful. In two years, we sent 15 players to the pros. We took the 80th and 81st ranked player in high school, and they were the four and five pick in the NBA draft. That's, you know, $25 million of salary right there. There's a guy on a two-way on the Knicks who nobody thought would ever be in the NBA and is in the NBA. So we just kind of 
you know, stripped down the whole science and process of training how to be great at basketball and built an amazing place for that. And they come because they love basketball. If they like basketball, they should not come. I'd say number two is we understood that why is school eight hours long? Because you have to watch kids for eight hours while their parents work and agriculture, factories, whatever. But the reality is, is half of that time is just filler. It's like lunch and recess and electives. And we just got rid of that and replaced it with basketball. So you can come get an A-plus education in four hours a day and then really train to be good at basketball. So the question is like, why does somebody go to Juilliard? Well, if you like to play the piano, you shouldn't go to Juilliard. If you want to play in the New York Philharmonic, you should go to Juilliard. And I'd say the last thing is that not everyone wants to go to college or go to a different school. They want to get better. They they want a chance to play in the NBA to make $100 million. And then we built an absolute audience juggernaut. I mean, we have, you know, 6 million fans in two years. Two of our teams, the only teams on TikTok that have more views than them are Miami FC, the, the Lakers and the Philadelphia Eagles. And so you come because you want to be seen and you want to play at the most epic arena and the most epic place. That's not everyone and that's okay. But if you're great and you want that and you want to be good and you want to maximize your shot, you come. And how does this differ from NIL name, image and likeness, which now that NIL exists, college players and high school players can get paid for endorsement contracts and that sort of thing, right? They can get paid to use their own name, image and likeness. They can't use the marks or the uniform of the school but they can use their own name, image, and likeness. And I'm able to then, therefore, take players who come. They might want to go to the NBA. They might want to go to college. Either way, they're able to maintain their eligibility. And if I need to compensate them, then I can pay them through, they get paid through various NIL deals mm -hmm. to be able to come to promote merchandise and to do other stuff like that. So there's a giant subset of them that also come because this is an opportunity for them to earn money off their name, image, and likeness right now, which can be life-changing for their family, for anything else like that. Whereas previously, we've been in this position where you're just supposed to essentially defer, work for nothing, work for nothing. And for some people, what if this is the apex of your career and you're never able to be compensated? If you're 17 and you're acting in the cast of Stranger Things or you're making a rap album or you're on YouTube, you can get paid. Here, it's like there's some weird thing that we have with sports. So I think NIL addresses a lot of that. It's interesting, my experience with AAU basketball. It seems like you're sort of a competitor to the NCAA and to AAU to some degree. AAU is summer, so less so. And it's like AAU is just about exposure. I mean, it's not team basketball. It's just a very different product. Lots of our players play in AAU. There's incredible AU coaches and there are AU coaches who still take under the table payments. They're just like everything in the world. There's people who are good and people who are less good. And that's not relegated to basketball per se. But yeah, I mean, it's AU in a sense that it's not your high school, but it's, it's not a competitor. Again, a lot of our players play and some of our players want to go to college. And so we partner. Rob Dillingham came, play with us and He's going to Kentucky. Coach Cal is in our gym looking for other players. Some some people don't want to go to college. And if they don't want to go to college, you're not a competitor. You're just offering them a different path. And I think between what we do, the G League Ignite does, the NBL in Australia does, like 
what you're really saying is like, there used to be only one path. You go to prep school, you go to D1 college and you try to make the MBA. And that's fine. But I think the most empowering thing, if you're a young person is you can go to OTE, you could say at your school, you can go to Duke, you can go to G League Ignite, you could do anything. And that aspect of choice is truly kind of what, you know, that, that's, that's American. The idea that you have choice in how you want to pursue your path. So choice is part of your calling card, part of why blue chip prospect would come to you. Well, we are, I don't, I don't think choice is why they come to us. I think choice is what we advocate for by doing a different model and therefore saying, we think we should be in an ecosystem where a young athlete should have a multiple number of choices about how they pursue their professional career. It sounds like another part of your as you mentioned before, another thing that you do really well is actually prepare kids for the next level, the NBA in this case. And you mentioned sort of breaking down teaching or coaching into, it sounds like it's component parts, what actually matters and what doesn't. Can you say a little bit more about that? Like, how did you, what's the process for that? What came of that? Like any realizations you had along the way or are those proprietary? Um, I think when you bring together a group of coaches and leaders of the program who have played in the NBA, coached at college, trained top players, sent players to the NBA, coached in high school. And you ask them kind of what are the things that a pro coach wants? What are the things that a college coach wants? Certain habits, certain skills, the ability to, you know, follow directions, understanding the work ethic. Basketball IQ is a huge thing. They will say there are a lot of players who are skilled. Their skills are great. They get to the MBA, and which is a live read environment often versus college. And their IQ is just not high. Like they don't recognize plays. They don't adapt. So we really focus on that. But I would say all the things outside, how to act on social media, how to create media, how to talk to the press, all of those things. Uh, one of our draft picks, the team said to us, he's the single best prepared player we have ever drafted as long in the history of us owning this franchise. And it's just, it's reps. It's being intentional. It's saying like, this is your career. you got to learn how to answer questions, how to do press, how to be on a podcast, how to do all those things. And those aren't things that are necessarily traditionally taught in other programs. And so now you're expanding this experience to football, boxing, as you mentioned, other other sports you're looking at as well? Yeah. I mean, every sport is different. Boxing and football are not residential in nature. Football happens not at the same time as football season, but in the spring. Boxing tends to be, you know, boxers are between 22 and 28 years old. But they all share in common an idea where there's something in the path for a professional in the sport that isn't as ideal as it could be. There's an opportunity for both exposure as well as really enhancing the athlete experience. And there's something where we think with better storytelling, the audience has a product that they might not really understand, but they're going to fall in love with. When you started, you were a Teach for America, as we mentioned before, at the beginning of that, you started overtime. You've started other companies in the meantime. I think the first one was an early version of what Ticketmaster became selling tickets online. Is that right? Yeah, I, I sold tickets online before Ticketmaster did. And then I sold my company to them. And then OMG Pop was after that. I and mean, you had the biggest social game in the world, I think, at the time. Yep. So obviously, you're an entrepreneur who has spanned a variety of different sectors, to put it mildly, and have has done 
unbelievably well in that. And your background, you're a history major, you're a jazz musician, you have a master's in Latin American history, I think. Where's the MBA in all of that? <laughs> and um, Or maybe a better version of that question is like, what explains this range of interests and successes? So those are two different questions. MBA is a waste of time. The only reason to get an MBA is for networking or because you specifically know you want to work in private equity or one of a small number of places to take it. To me, I was interested in doing and learning. I personally will not hire people with MBAs. I'm not looking for cookie cutter employees. I think other people are, which is a reason to get an MBA. I'm looking for people who bring diverse points of views and backgrounds and can think through things with their own models. I would say, what do those things have in common? I don't know. I'm a curious person. I like to learn about the world. I believe with the exception of perhaps science and chemistry, I can learn about almost anything. And I'm good. I'm bad at a lot of things, but I'm good at understanding market dynamics and where there are opportunities. And, you know, there's a thing in startups where they talk about like pivoting. Oh, I tried to, you know, make a company that made toothbrushes, but I pivoted and now I run a podcast company. To me, a, a pivot is is a stupid word and it's a form of failure. Like you just failed. Like and now you're trying to do something else with someone's same money. To me, I never pivot. I just make a thousand adjustments constantly because you're you're getting feedback in almost any business from the market all the time. I don't like this, but I like that. I don't like this, but I like that. And you're constantly moving the company around. And I've been lucky to play in things like media and software where that's possible. I think if you open a restaurant and nobody likes the restaurant, it's pretty hard to make a thousand changes. You're not gonna all of a sudden serve Italian food when you were serving Japanese food the day before. But in general, you know, my point of view is that a company is a hypothesis. And you go out and you start to build product and you test that hypothesis and you try to end up in a place where you've gotten the best response from the audience. And often that's in a place where other people have just thought it wasn't interesting to play or they've had structural inhibitions that have stopped them from being able to execute in that area. Can you describe what some of those shifts that you've made in different companies have been and, and maybe over time would be the best place to focus that? Like, what does that look like? you know, specifically at a company like Overtime? For sure. One last thing I want to say on the MBA, like the reason that people get an MBA or even a law degree often is to mitigate risk. They just want to maximize their opportunities. I'm not looking for risk mitigators. I'm looking for risk takers. I have no interest in working with risk mitigators. They can go work at McKinsey and Goldman Sachs. I would say, you know, when we started, I had come off of building an app that had 250 million downloads. And I was like, damn, maybe I'm just really good at building apps, but I'm good or not. I like it and it's fun. And I just thought there was an opportunity to build an app that was really focused around basketball and essentially almost like building a sports center for every high school in America. Um, and I built it and, you know, it was, I'd say it was good, but not great. And I was like, how do I get people to use the app? And I was like, maybe I should use Instagram as a way to promote the app. And as I posted and used Instagram, it became clear that like people loved what we were posting on Instagram, but they never downloaded the app. And I was like, maybe we just have to give up on the app and go all in on Instagram and take all the content we thought we were going to have there and put it there and just kind of made the decision in a shorter period of time to shut it down and switch over. And everyone thinks like we started as this kind of social media company, but you know, we actually started as an app company and that's what our first investors invested in. It's just that I was not interested in what the product was. I was interested in 
who the audience was. It's kind of like this silly thing. They say like, what do you need to start a company? And everyone says you need an idea. And the answer is you need a customer. And then you figure out what that customer, what they want and what they're not getting. And so it didn't matter to me whether it came on an app or on Snapchat or on Instagram or anything else like that. It's just like those were means to getting to that audience and building relationships. And how do you get to that audience? So some of that is obviously just seeing what kind of reception it's getting in the numbers. No, I mean, you have to be a, you have to be a fucking killer at social. Like you have to know how to grind and how to work and how to grow. But I can't tell you what that is because that's proprietary. <laughs> so on this topic of MBAs and people who are risk averse. So a couple of things I take just from what you've said and also things I've read online, you are constantly learning. You yourself are a risk taker, obviously. And a quote about entrepreneurs that I've heard before is something along the lines of an entrepreneur is someone who sees a vision of the future so clearly that he or she cannot stop until that vision is realized, which sounds consistent with how you're talking, except maybe do you see something down the road and have a big vision for like where this is going? Or is it more like you're going to follow and make these small or in some cases, large adjustments along the way? as the market dictates, as the customer dictates. I'm curious about how you see that. And then I also as a second question, like what else goes into like the, the characteristics of you as an entrepreneur or of entrepreneurs generally? Yeah, so I would say first and foremost, I mean, I think you start with a big vision and work backwards, but the reality is, is that it's more like the second example where you just kind of take a step and then you take another step because the world is changing around you all the time. The world isn't static, right? I ran a gaming company and I sold it for $200 million based on an iPhone game. And the iPhone wasn't even invented when we started the company. It didn't matter if I had a big vision. Like it, it was a vision, you know, it wasn't mine initially. It was a, you know, someone else's company. But this, I embraced it, this idea that you want to connect people through games and bring them together. And I think that matters. But I think ultimately what you're looking for is... A space in the market, a market opportunity. You're trying to clear space. You don't open a pizza restaurant on your block if there's two other pizza restaurants on your block, you know? And so to me, you're looking for market opportunity. You're testing, you're testing, you're growing, you're doubling down on what's working. Sometimes you're having the patience to figure out what that is. And then you're connecting that to a big vision. And in year one, our vision could have been as simple as like, we will never publish anything that ESPN will publish, you know, and then it grows like, you know, we want to be the place where every single person who's 20 years old, who loves sports, follows and talks about us. And, and, and that evolves over time. But I, I think that when I worked at Virgin with Christine, Richard Branson did a really good job of describing it almost as like a challenger brand, right? So he launches this airline and competes with British Airways, BA, British Airways, and Virgin. I mean, they're both planes. They have wheels and wings and pilots and stewardesses. It's like, so you find a couple things like Virgin just felt cooler. They played Coldplay instead of Muzak. Like, you know, they gave you champagne instead of water. Like you did like the 5% that you can kind of, do there. And then you go for it. And I'd say in a way, I guess I'm a huge risk taker because I've given up a lot of big jobs to go and try to do this. But I don't feel like... To me, a risk taker is like somebody who jumps off a cliff or like somebody who takes their entire life savings and goes to Vegas and put on red. Like I'm not a risk taker in that sense because I just... Like my goal is to win. 
Like, it's kind of like I always joke about poker with my son, who's a very good poker player. And he says, it's a game of skill. It's not a game of chance. It's not luck. It's skill. And it's still risky. Like you can lose all your money or you can win all your money. And so to me, that that's where... I want to be versus kind of blind luck or risk. So I saw on your your LinkedIn, first of all, your LinkedIn is is funny, which I think I've said approximately never to anybody. So congratulations on that. Um, and you can actually get a sense of who you are on that, I think. And you said about your time at, at one of the companies, I think that acquired the uh, one that you were running, you said you are not very good at general corporate stuff. And that seems to track with your disdain for the risk averse MBA types. But at least conventional wisdom would say at some point, you take all these risk takers, and you have a pirate ship and you need to get once you get big, you need to turn that into a Navy. Do you disagree with that conventional wisdom? Or how do you address the need for presume need anyways, for things like process and structure and stuff like that, which I would assume is what you mean by general corporate stuff. But maybe I'm wrong about that. Yeah, I would say partially, I would say that I'm not against process and structure, although all the companies that I run are very loosely run. I think there's pros and cons to each. I think the more steady state your business is in trying to do the same thing over and over again, the more that process matters. The more that you're constantly reinventing what you're doing and seizing new market opportunities, structure and other things like that can be challenging. I would say some of it is structure and some of it is, and it's not, this isn't meant to dismiss any large company, but the larger you get, there becomes a secondary and sometimes a primary factor in the company, which is just about politics. Like it becomes less about how do I do a good job and more about how do I advance in this company? Who do I align myself with? Who do I undercut? And all those other things. And to me, I just, I'm just not that interested in that. I don't like whatever other people are. That's cool. Like, but for me, I'm not good at it. I'm not interested in, I'm interested in the business problem. I'm interested in like, how do we do X, Y, and Z? And when you have a larger company, oftentimes people are interested in all the other stuff. And I'll, I'll never forget. I took a job at a large company at some point, And I said to the person who kind of welcomed me who was an executive. I said, really excited about all this work. I'm just not that into like the politics and the other stuff. And she said, well, you better be. So to me, like, I don't know about the Navy. Like, I think that you want to have a loose alliance of small, nimble people who can do stuff. But, you know, I can decide to get into boxing. And in three months, I can have a boxing fight with the whole team here. I could work at a large company and I'm making a PowerPoint and it's going to the VP and then the SVP and then the EVP and then the VP loves it, but the EVP hates the VP. So he's like, I'm just going to fuck his project over because it's a good idea, but I don't like him. And it's like, it sounds not real, but I have a tremendous amount of experience of working in large companies where that is actually real. So temperamentally, you are sort of classic entrepreneur, it sounds like from what you're saying, and, and that's been borne out by your results as an entrepreneur. How much of that, I know you teach at NYU, you teach entrepreneurship, how much of, of what you've done is actually teachable? And how much of it is just sort of innate temperament, assuming your temperament is innate in that way? I would say more of it is innate than teachable. First of all, it was teachable. Anyone could just go become an entrepreneur and everyone would be Mark Zuckerberg and the world would be a different place. 
marketplace. But I think a lot of it is linked to what people's intrinsic motivations are. And that part is not teachable. It's not an accident that a lot of entrepreneurs have a chip on their shoulder. They have a reason, something to prove, a reason to grind. It's not about money or it's about passion or showing something to the world or anything else like that. You just can't teach that in the same way that a lot of people have a risk-averse temperament. There are things that you can learn that can optimize your chances for being successful. You know, how to lead people, how to talk to people, how to manage people. Certainly, the best way to learn them is not off in the classroom, but just being in the world and making mistakes. I, I will say to my class, like, every year, people will pitch me on a certain type of business. And I'll just think, God, I've seen 20 businesses of those pitch over the last 10 years. Zero of them have worked. I could probably spend an hour telling you why, but I can just tell you from pattern recognition, like it doesn't work. And so you get, you get better and you learn stuff. And I think, you know, whatever Steve Jobs famously said, his most favorite class in college was calligraphy. You look for inputs that aren't just dollar and cents inputs. And ultimately there's an aspect of being successful as an entrepreneur that requires, you know, finding the right people and convince them to keep working with you. There's an aspect of creativity, you know, even if that's writing software, it's, it's an aspect of thinking creatively as well as being creative. School is not optimized for that school. Like there's a way to get an A in school. We all learn that. There's a way to get into college, get an SATs tutor, get somebody to help you write your essay, choose a major that's unpopular, like whatever all those things are. And those are all about reverting to a very specific mean in terms of how to get there. And so I, I think that there are character traits about just thinking in a really different way that are hard to teach. If you teach them, it means that people who don't have them can understand them and they can appreciate them, but I don't know whether they can emulate them. I can understand a lot about basketball. I can understand what makes people good at a high pick and roll. I can understand the exact role of a three and D player with eight minutes left in the game, but I can't do it. It sounds like the way you've come to your companies or to your ideas that became companies is through this sort of scanning the world and, and figuring out what people are looking for. A lot of younger like students, alumni who I work with from our schools are thinking like, oh, AI is the thing right now. So I need to go into, you know, AI or coding or whatever. And it seems like you probably would not have predicted your career path starting back when you were at the high school to college age. And so what advice would you have for alumni like ours who are trying to figure out? And our alumni are very entrepreneurial as a, as a group. I don't know what it is, but they we just have a lot of them who are starting businesses and trying to get businesses off the ground, some of them very successfully, would you recommend they focus on an industry or would you recommend that they sort of scan the world for opportunities? I would say the only thing you have to be an expert on is you have to be an expert on the problem that your user has. Saying I want to do something in AI is like, I want to make something, but I have no idea what the problem I want to solve is. And I have no idea what the, the user or the customer is. So I think that's a backwards way of doing things. I will say you can be entrepreneurial and not be the person to start the company. In that case, if you find, if you're just like um, longitudinally, I think AI is really interesting. I understand it. I feel entrepreneurial. Then go find some really freaking smart people who are starting those companies and go work for those companies. Like you don't have to be the one to start it. I consider a lot of people here entrepreneurs, even though they didn't start the company. 
because they've been really entrepreneurial and had very fulfilling opportunities. And look, to be an entrepreneur also requires you to take a financial risk that not everyone is willing to take. And I was willing to take, but then I had kids and maybe I wasn't willing to take that risk. So I'd say that like AI is popular. I should start an AI company is silly. AI is popular. I should go find the most smartest people and work for their company. That's a smart idea. The real thing is like, where are the pain points in the world? Like what is, what do the customers need that they're not getting? And how do you become an expert in that? And I, I like to tell the story of a guy I know he, he ran a fashion company outside of the United States and he came back to meet with me and I said, oh, what are you doing now? And he said, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm really obsessed with carbonated water. I'm like trying to build a soda stream competitor. And I said, what does that have to do with a fashion company? And he said, nothing. He said, but I'm an entrepreneur. That's what I do. I like go deep on something. I try to understand the problem with an outsider's mindset. And then I try to surround myself with people who know how to create the solution. And I think if that's you, that's fine. Look, I didn't sell my company for $200 million until I was 46 years old. I wasn't Mark Zuckerberg. Like, you can do a lot of things and still get there. Speaking of elsewhere, you've mentioned that you like disrupting systems that aren't working. One of those systems, many would argue, is the education system in the United States. And so kind of getting back to where we started with this conversation do you have thoughts on how you would or someone should disrupt the education system in the U.S.? It's a really good question. I think it's enormously difficult given how politicized education is, given the way education is funded, given the stakeholders. And education is a tricky space because everybody went to school. Therefore, they feel like they have an opinion. The thing I hated at Teach for America and the place I worked afterwards was every board member was like, well, why do we do that? When I learned math, we did this. And you're just thinking, well, great. Like, that's you. Like, we're talking about something bigger. So I think it's really, really challenging. I would say on the higher education model where I don't do anything except teach one class as an adjunct professor uh, that I've taught for a bunch of years. For me, I'm not interested in grades. Like everybody gets an A and, and it's theirs to lose. I'm not interested in tests. I just think they force people to study for something specifically. And when I assign a paper, I will not tell you how many pages it should be. I'm just like, you should just write a great paper. And people lose their mind. They can't understand that. And I'm like, listen, if I tell you how many pages, I understand. You increase the size of the font, you decrease the size of the font. But to me, like... You should be like, this is great. Like I learned something and it's so difficult. Like people drop the class and they get frustrated and they think they're going to lose their summer job because I'm not going to give them an A. But the reality is when you go out in the world and you start a company or you do something at work like that, nobody is like, it needs to be six pages and double spaced and here's the subject and here's everything else like that. They're just like, go do X. And it's not that I'm obsessed with training people for the real world per se. I just think we create a lot of parameters around grades and tests and papers and other things like that. And all they do is they optimize people to give you what they think you want. And they prioritize essentially learning and engineering the system over actually learning something. And so when I assign a reading, I ask the students, tell me what you thought of it. And what happens is they all send me a summary of the reading. And I said, I read the reading. I don't need a summary of the reading. I want to know what did you think? 
And occasionally you'll have these crazy breakouts and people will put things together, but it's really, really challenging. And I pick college because how do I expect them to do something different when they've been the product of the same thing from K to 12? And I think that the other thing, the last thing I'll say on that is like, you know, in high school, you think if you're of a certain aspiration, you think a lot about going to college and going to college is all about risk mitigation. And college is like you have to get an A in every subject. But the reality is, is like in life, we don't look for generalists who have an A in every subject. We look for people who have A++ in one thing and we're okay if they don't know how to do another thing. I'm really good at getting up and talking to a group of people, but I'm not that great at writing contracts. But that's okay. I have somebody who can write contracts. And what we do is we say, well, you probably shouldn't take that class. You shouldn't take that theater class because if you get a B, it's going to mess up your grade average and you're not going to get into college. And by the way, we're looking for people who get A's in everything. But the most interesting people in the world are not people who get A's in everything. They're people who, who go deep on things and are passionate about it and kind of clear away the other things. So those aren't really structural things. Those are just kind of like high level observations from teaching college and from recognizing who's sitting in that class and saying like, how are we going to make a better world if we have a bunch of risk minimizers and MBAs and other people who are just playing to a system that we already have instead of people who have developed the capacity to think outside of that system and, you know, perhaps make a change. It's interesting. The last guest I had on this show was a woman named Ana Lorena Fabrega, who wrote a book called The Learning Game that basically makes that same set of arguments about the K-12 system and her sort of thoughts on how to change that and what to do as educators, as parents. Yeah, I have no idea how to change it. I'm like one dude, but I can tell you what I observe. It's up to somebody more entrepreneurial and smart about education to tell me how they're going to take all those observations and do something different. Well, Dan, we are out of time, but I very much appreciate you coming on our show. Where can people find out more about you, about Overtime? Where can they find you online? TFA, like in Teach for America, DP is my Instagram and my Twitter. When we started Teach for America, there was no email. So we all went on AOL and got email addresses that had started with TFA. And it turned out to be something nobody ever had when I was uh, signing up for services. So And now everyone's like, why is TFA the first three letters yeah, of your handle? Yeah, exactly. I have no idea. And then we are just at overtime on every single platform. Great. Thanks so much, Dan. Thanks, Ben. Sweat the Technique is a production of the Branch Media Podcast Network. You could follow all of the Branch's podcasts at at the Branch Media on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And you could check out our website at thebranchmedia.org. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review, give us a five-star rating, and subscribe to the show so that you can join us every Wednesday for more Sweat the Technique.